Well, good morning, everybody. All right. I was going to make some jokes this morning, but in the interest of time, I won't talk about the fact that it was the first night of camping and I had no bacon this morning in my campsite. Site 44, by the way, just, just saying. Um, no bacon. You know, I, I, I don't know if you've been to the coffee bar yet, but there are, there are little questions on the cups and the coffee bar cups. And the, the question I had this morning was really uh, appropriate, I think, for, what, for the message this morning, because the, the question was simply this, crossword or Sudoku? Well, obviously Sudoku, right? We'll get that out of the way first. But it, it got me to thinking about my reaction to a question like that because you know, it's an innocuous question. It, it's, it, they're, they're forms of entertainment designed to distract you, designed to keep your brain engaged, designed to relax you, whatever it is. I got issues because for me, it's really not that kind of question because I, family value word is, is coming, prepare yourselves. I hate crossword puzzles with a passion most people, I think, don't have that kind of reaction to crossword puzzles. And so it got me to thinking about why I might feel that way, the way I do about something as innocuous as a crossword puzzle. And it really gets to the heart of, of who we are and, and, and the sin that is in our hearts, doesn't it? Because when you stop and think about what motivates and drives you, drives your emotions, drives your speech, out of the heart the mouth speaks, Right. When you stop and think about those things, you really come to realize that there's a lot going on in your heart that you're not even maybe even aware of, that, that's driving who you are as a person and how you interact with others, how you behave, and whether or not you appropriately despise crossword puzzles. I, I, for me, language is something I'm good at. It's one of the few things I think that I'm actually good at. Give me an essay, I shine, I'm really good at essays. I sit down and look at a crossword puzzle and I'm completely lost. You know, a, a four-letter word for the category in which oranges sit starts with an F. And I'm thinking, okay, fruit, no. Bananas, no. And, and I, I, I could sit there for hours and never come up with the obvious category, which would be food. Oranges are a food, right? And so for me, crossword puzzles are simply a, a really, are, are, are an example of why my heart is desperately wicked. Because it, it, it really gets to sin issues in the heart. When, I, when you stop and you think about why you respond the way you do to different uh, stimuli or different things in your environment or things that you're thinking about or the things that are impacting you or affecting you. So anyway, let me open in prayer um, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for these children and the, the joy they're having, the fun. They run around and it's so sweet to be able to trust that my kids can go and, and have fun and enjoy one another, enjoy their friends and... Uh, I know that they're being loved and cared for wherever they may be. And so, Father, thank you for that. Thank you for this time. And I just, I just pray that you bless us through your word as we open it this morning, that we may be able to understand a little bit better about what we're talking about this morning. And so, Father, I just pray you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every family camp has a theme. And our theme this year is something like things that go bump in the night. Yes, we are going to be talking about your deepest and darkest fears. It's an appropriate time in family camp, I think, when you're camping, to be thinking about fear. What could be more appropriate in a strange place, coupled with deathly silence at night and the darkness, to listen to all those latent fears that you don't usually think about when you're at home? Those gleaming eyes watching you as you go to the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning come to mind. So I want to start by defining what fear is. 
Then we'll talk about the underlying causes of fear. And then we'll wrap up by talking about what we can do about fear. So what are we talking about? Fear, anxiety, worry. These are a common emotions. We all experience them from time to time, don't we? And I want to submit to you that these three emotions, fear, anxiety, and worry, while having different nuances of meaning, they have the same essential underlying basis. The root issue for all of them is essentially the same. Dictionary.com will tell you, for example, that to be worried is to be tormented with anxieties. It'll then tell you that to be anxious means to be in distress because of fear of danger or misfortune. And when I looked up a thesaurus, I noted that each of these three terms, each identified or referenced the others as synonyms. They're synonymous terms, fear, anxiety, and worry. So I'm going to be using those terms somewhat interchangeably this morning. I recognize there are minor differences. There are nuances to the word. I get it. But I hope to be able to show you that these three emotions are, by nature, essentially the same. Now, there are are many things that we can be fearful of, aren't there? And there are different categories of fear. There's the the fear of God, for example. That's a good thing. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm not going to be talking about that kind of fear this morning. I'll save that for my brothers tomorrow and Saturday. Then there's the fear of something that's immediately threatening to your life, your safety. That's the fear of something material and immediate. And it's out of your control. Perhaps you're face to face with a bear or an intruder in your home. That kind of fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. Our bodies gear us up for a a fight or a flight response. That's the way God created us, isn't it? The mind perceives a danger. Maybe it's a bear. Maybe it's a mountain lion. And then and the brain signals the body to react. Mental and emotional stress causes an increase in heart rate, muscle tension, adrenaline. And that prepares you for a battle or for a fight or a flight response. For some of us, we might fight it. Some of us, we may run for our lives. It's a physiological reaction to something that's immediately threatening. We're not going to talk about that fear either. God has placed in us a natural, self-preserving function that's been designed to keep us alive. And that's good and appropriate if it's kept within reasonable bounds. What do I mean by that? You could develop a phobia, right? You could develop an unreasonable fear of bears. One that might keep you up at night, worrying, terrified. That is the kind of fear that we're going to be talking about tonight, or this morning. And fears like that. Fear has been defined as the anticipation of what could go wrong. My sermon title was going to be The Anticipatory Nature of Fear. But I felt like that was a bit cumbersome and unnecessarily burdensome to to figure out what I meant. So I I reduced it down to uh, something like the anticipation of fear being the anticipation of the future. Fear is an anticipation of what could go wrong, of what might or might not occur. It's an anticipation, an emotional or cognitive reaction to something that has something that hasn't actually happened yet. It's the anticipation of being a tasty snack for a bear tonight 
or having a spider bigger than your average cat climb into your sleeping bag to keep warm. Perhaps you're fearful of a future event. You wonder, how will my family be provided for when I'm gone? What if I get sick or, or someone I love contracts a degenerative disease? What if I lose my job? Maybe an upcoming ballet or piano recital is keeping you awake at night. Are you worried about whether or not your children will be saved? Perhaps you're fearful of other people and what they think of you. Perhaps the most common fear is the fear of man. Books and books have been written on the subject. and manifests itself in countless ways. For young people, it's called peer pressure. It's another way of saying you've got a fear of man. For adults, it might manifest through overcommitment. You find it hard to say no to people. Perhaps self-esteem is a critical issue for you. You care too much about what other people think of you. Maybe you're afraid of being exposed as an imposter or the opinion of others counts or controls you. Are you easily embarrassed? Are you jealous of others? Do other people make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people? Do you define your life by the standard of other people rather than by God's standard? There are countless versions of the fear of man. But hopefully you get the point. Fear is a universal problem. We all struggle with fear. If you can fog a mirror, you can and probably will be fearful. You'll probably worry about something. Maybe not right now as you're sitting here in the, in the increasing warmth of the day, but maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight. Here's my confession. We're friends here, right? This is a state between us. I don't, I don't worry about much. I don't think I'm a fearful person, but one thing I am fearful of is wasting my life. I think about that a lot. As I get older, especially, there seems to be this increased urgency to be useful for God. I have a, a wonderful family. I have a good career. I have a, a, just a wonderful wife. I'm blessed with incredible children. I have ministry opportunities, but still I fear that I'm going to get to the end of the days God has given me and discover that I've wasted it. And, and I suspect, much like the, the crossword versus Sudoku puzzle question that makes me look like an idiot, really, I suspect, though, that, that that fear of wasting my life probably drives a lot of what I do. In doing it, in, 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 in fearing that way, I'm anticipating something that hasn't happened. And that affects how I feel today. And that's a trap that fear has for you. It affects how you feel today, even though the object of your fear hasn't even happened. We can be fearful when we realize that we've sinned before God. Adam and Eve were fearful in the garden, weren't they? They hid from God. Because for the first time in their lives, they were afraid of Him. They were anticipating the consequences of their sin. Sarah was afraid because she lacked the faith that God would fulfill His promise to give her children. She was anticipating being childless and that God would turn his back on her. Isaac was afraid because Rebekah was attractive. He feared what the Philistines might do to him because of her. He had no idea, but that was his fear. The Israelites feared their enemies. The disciples feared for their safety during a storm. They anticipated a shortened life expectancy or a bloody death and that God would not fulfill his promises to them. 
Maybe you don't worry about a bloody death. Some do. But what about persistent feelings of tension? Do you struggle to sleep at night because your brain won't stop rehearsing what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you find yourself anxious about the future? To be clear, a godly concern for the spiritual welfare of your children, for example, that's not sinful. The Apostle Paul talked about having a concern for others in the body. And that's okay, that's good, that's appropriate. But I submit to you, friends, that most anxiety, most fear, most worry is sinful. It's sin. Jerry Bridges wrote that anxiety is the opposite of trust. It's the opposite of trust in God. When we don't trust God, we can expect a flood of negative emotions, including anxiety, fear, and worry. That's how it works. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3 that when you trust God and seek his wisdom, you can lie down and not be afraid. I love this verse. You can lie down, not be afraid, and your sleep will be sweet. You can rest in him. But fear and anxiety robs us of that rest. It's the opposite of trust. If we're not trusting God, then we're not resting in his sovereignty. Matthew tells us in his gospel, you know the story, that when Jesus walked on water out to the boat, the men on the boat, his disciples, were terrified. They thought he was a ghost or some kind of apparition, and that's understandable, I think. You might think their response was reasonable. And Jesus' response to them was compassionate. It was kind. Take heart at his eye. Don't be afraid. You remember the story, Peter, in typical Peter fashion, Gets all excited. He jumps out of the boat to go and greet Jesus. That's a big faith moment in his life. But then he panics. And what happens? He sinks. Sinks down into the water, doesn't he? And what was Jesus' response to that? It wasn't quite as compassionate. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter, why do you doubt me? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we doubt him? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verse 25. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is exhorting his listeners to be fearful, to be anxious for nothing. Matthew 6, verse 25. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, verse 27, note this, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen? Amen. Six times Jesus used the word anxious in that passage. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do you think he cares about your heart? Do you think he wants you to worry or be fearful for the future? He said that we're not to be anxious about what we eat or drink or wear or even about the unknown circumstances of tomorrow. We're not to be anxious in our anticipation of what might come. It's when we anticipate system failure that we panic, isn't it? We worry, we're anxious, we fear for the future. Jesus exhorted his disciples in Matthew 10, 31, in the context of coming persecution, fear not. Don't be fearful, he said. Persecution's coming. Fear not. Paul in Philippians 4, 6 instructs us to be anxious for nothing. And Peter exhorts us to cast all of our anxieties on Christ. Jesus, Paul, Peter, all commanding us to not be fearful. Note that these exhortations carry with them the weight of a moral command. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. In other words, writes Bridges, it's, not, it's the moral will of God that we not be anxious or fearful. It's God's moral will that we not be anxious or fearful, that we don't worry about the future. Or to say it more explicitly, anxiety, worry, fear is sin. When we worry about what others might think of us, we're in sin. When we worry about the future, when I lie awake at night fearful of wasting my life, I'm in sin. Fear, anxiety, and worry are sin because in those moments, we are not trusting God. We're not trusting our Lord. Well, you say, I'm not afraid of the future. I'm not, a, I'm not fearful of other people. I'm just concerned about them. I think a lot about the future, about what might happen, but I'm not worried about them. I'm just concerned. I have, a, I, have a, I have a reasonable concern for what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, that, that general concern quickly becomes sinful anxiety when our thoughts and fears inordinately become focused on changing or avoiding whatever it is that's making us fearful. When we allow our thoughts to control us, we neglect our responsibilities, we lose hope, and our thoughts become unproductive. People can even take such extreme measures to avoid their fear that they can become enslaved by the very thing they're afraid of. That's the nature of fear. It comes really fast. Fear divides our minds between the now and the not yet. And it's a lot of emotional energy spent for no benefit. Look back at Matthew 6, 26. The birds of the air neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds and that your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And note this, which one of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your lifespan? Have you ever thought about that? All that worry, all that stress, all that anxiety, all that fear. How much have you actually added to your lifespan? Has God truly counted your days before you were even born, measured out your life? 
You'd think that Jesus knew what would be going on in our hearts, wouldn't you? Who here adds an hour to their lifespan by being anxious? Yet we manage to find so much to worry about, don't we? Special diets, skin knees, that rent check that we just don't know how we're going to get the money together to pay. The mortgage payment that's, that just burns a hole in your bank account every month and you just don't know how much longer you can pay that thing. The guy at work that just won't let up on you. Or that opportunity to share the gospel. With a co-worker next week. My friends, it's not helpful to be fearful. Abram fretted over his wife, Sarai, because she was a beautiful woman. He worried that the Egyptians would kill him so that they could take her for Pharaoh. That was unproductive. And in fact, it wasn't just an unfruitful and unproductive anticipation of the future. That fear led Abram into sin, didn't it? It was a pointless fear that led to a very pointed sin. Sinful fear turns our focus and our attention on ourselves. We might think that the fear is for an ex- of an external object, and it is, but the reality is the fear is self-focused. Jacob feared his brother Esau. He went to great lengths to set up a reunion with him in such a way that he might be protected from his brother's wrath. He sent him extravagant gifts and flattering envoys, all in an attempt at saving his own skin because he feared his brother. He was thinking about himself. Moses sent spies into the land of Canaan. Remember that story? But the spies came back with these terrible reports of overwhelming armies and fortified cities and giants who lived there. It's a land, they said, that devours its inhabitants. And so the Israelites raised a loud cry in Numbers 14, and they wept all night long. Oh, they said, oh, they cried. Would that they had died in the land of Egypt instead of in this wilderness. Why would the Lord bring us here, they said. Take us through everything we've gone through, only to have us die by the sword here. Our wives and our children will become prey to the Nephilim. We should go back to Egypt, they said. Fire Moses and find somebody else to lead us. Do you think they're fearful of an anticipation of the future? In their fear, in their anticipation of future horrors, they had become obsessed with themselves and they had forgotten about God. They had forgotten His promises. That seems to be a consistent theme, I think, here. Turn with me to Mark 4.37. Mark 4.37. Jesus had just spent some time teaching and He was tired. And so he wanted to get away from the crowds for a bit. So he jumps into a boat with some of his disciples and they set out across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore. There were fewer people over there. It was a good place for him to rest. Mark 4.37, a great windstorm arose while they're in the boat and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? Isn't that an interesting question? Don't you care that we're going to die? Talk about a loaded question, right? Windstorms are common on the Sea of Galilee. Strong winds would blow off Mount Hermon down onto the lake. 
And there would often be sudden violent windstorms sweeping in. And so this, this storm must have been substantial for these experiments, experienced fishermen to panic like they did. But Jesus, he slept. And just prior to this event, these same disciples had seen Jesus reveal some of the most amazing displays of deity. He cleansed a leper. He healed a centurion servant, and he healed many others. You see that in Matthew 8. And so these guys knew that he was special. But in their anticipation of drowning, there goes that word again, anticipation. In their anticipation of drowning, they had forgotten who he was. There's that theme again. They had forgotten who he was. Back in Mark 4, look at verse 39. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And here it is, verse 40. Trust me, you never want to hear these words from Jesus. Trust me. Jesus awoke and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Or why do you doubt me? Why do you continue to doubt me? You see, their fear reflected a lack of faith. Even in this terrifying storm, with their Lord sleeping on a cushion, he expected them to trust him. And he expects us to trust him as well. Think about Job. God took everything Job loved away from him. He took his children away. He took his cattle away, although I'm guessing Job probably didn't love his cattle. He took his servants, and yet his response was remarkable. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job trusted God with the details of his life, even the painful ones. Solomon wrote that the fear of man lays a snare, but... Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 13, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He goes on to define what good is in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, he said, of those people that want to hurt you. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says you'll be blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake. God will use your suffering. Friends, we need to trust him. It's it's as simple as that. And that's easy to do until things get hard, isn't it? The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 8, verse 12, Don't fear what these people fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. And he goes on in chapter 9 to explain that a child is coming. A wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. A child was coming who would ultimately take away any reason to fear. Live in submissive communion with the Lord. Treasure him in your heart. Love and obey him, honor him, and you will have nothing to fear. That's what they're promising us. Fear is the fruit of unbelief. When we worry or we're fearful, we're failing to believe the promises of God. Do you get that? Does that make sense? 
In fact, Paul wrote to the Romans that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When we respond in fear, we live in fear, we worry about the future. In our lives, we're responding to life as if God is not sovereign. We're trying to usurp him from his throne and put ourselves in his place. Now, I don't believe that any of you think that God is not sovereign, that he's powerless to reign on his throne. You know the theology of God's sovereignty. We're in a great church with great teaching. I appreciated the light days bringing attention to that yesterday. We have a wonderful church church with wonderful preaching, wonderful teaching. We know the theology of God's sovereignty, don't we? You trust in it. We've read the scripture that says that God provides for the birds of the air. And Paul said that he provides the seed to the sower and bread for food. So of course he's going to provide for you. You know these verses very well. And I have no doubt that if I ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to do it. Don't panic. Of who here believes that God is sovereign, every hand will shoot up. Unhesitatingly. Enthusiastically. But if we drill down just a little bit and talked about the fears that lurk in the dark recesses of our hearts, and we talked about the suffering that many here have endured, I think we'd be more likely to hear something like, I believe God is sovereign, but but you don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand how hard my life has been. You don't understand what my father was like. You don't understand how hard it is to make ends meet these days. My God is sovereign, I get that, but I think he's forgotten me. How am I supposed to not be fearful for what this life will bring when I'm dealing with chronic pain, depression, disease, financial hardships, unbelieving children, aging bones? You don't get it. My God is sovereign, but I think I'm the exception. The prophet Daniel wrote that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You think God is sovereign and in control? Friends, God does as he pleases. That's a good thing. And nothing can stop him. But he's not an ogre. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a, 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 a God who does things out of, out of whimsy to hurt. He's a God of love. He loves you. He loves those over whom he has placed his special care. And we can trust him. Isaiah 46, verse 8. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Our God is reigning on his throne, isn't he? Amen. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. That's the ultimate place of prominence, honor, majesty, authority, power, the angels, the, the authorities, the powers, they have all been subjected to him. He's interceding for us. He's exalted. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's a high priest who far exceeds anything that we could have ever hoped for. This is our God. This is whom we claim to worship. Our God is sovereign. No buts, no exceptions. But still, Jesus has to ask the question, why do you still doubt me? Why do you still doubt me? 
to how do we trust him even in the face of anticipated danger? Well, the Apostle Paul, Apostle John, I'm sorry, contrasted fear and love. Fear and love. He said that love from and for God erases all fear. The way to put off fear is to put on love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. The way to put off fear is to put on love. Beloved, he writes, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's a lot of good stuff in this passage, but skip down with me to verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the, for the day of judgment. Because, he is also, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You see, fear is self-absorbed. It focuses our energies, its energies, on us. But love asks what we can do for others. There's an object to, for your fear. It might be a fear of driving, a fear of getting old, of being of no use, of wasting your life, of failing an exam, of losing your job. The consistent thread in all of that is the object of your fear is outside of yourself. You have no control over that. You can't control what your employer is going to do tomorrow. You can't stop yourself from getting old as hard as we try. And you only have so much control over the, your genetic pool for your children's sake. You only have so much control over your retirement, your kid's salvation. That's in God's hands. And all the other things we tend to freak out about. It doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? We call those things the heat in your life. If you look at a biblical counselor's schematic of sin and, and, and counseling, you've got this bright sun at the top, at the center of the page. And that's the, the heat that's in our life. Those are those things that, that affect us negatively or positively that we have no control over. But God offers great hope in his word. We can't remove the heat. The heat is going to be there no matter what you do. There will always be things to be fearful of. But we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, handle problems God's way. You can change your negative thinking. Meditate on right desires, on right thinking. Confess the idols that have made their way into your heart. Like I had to think this morning about crossword puzzles and how much I hate them. Because I've made an idol in my heart of, of, of the things that I'm good at. I rely on those things too much. Confess those idols that are in your heart. You can do the right thing regardless of how you feel or what's going on in your world. And Lord willing, your feelings will change as you change your thinking. Work on dealing with life challenges and obligations God's way. Put off ungodly patterns of behavior and put on God-honoring habits. Do this and you'll reap the rewards as you learn to be obedient in spite of your feelings. Spiders the size of cats may always make your heartbeat skip a couple of beats. But Lord willing, your feelings will change as you change your thinking. 
good feelings, God-honoring feelings, are the result of right thinking and right actions. The bad news is there's sin in this world. It's not going away. We can't change the heat in your life. The temptations and the pressures are mostly beyond your control. But we can address the source of your feelings. That's your thinking and your actions. God has the answers that you need for life's problems. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, he says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Right thinking can lead to right hope. And the basis for that right thinking, says Peter, is his word. He says his divine power has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called you. The basis for that is his word. It's through his word that we can obtain all we need to pursue godliness and a life that honors him. A life that isn't fearful, anxious, or riddled with worry about things over which we have absolutely no control. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You know that verse well, don't you? The purpose statement there in Romans 8, 29 is that God is working these things, difficult things, painful things, terrifying things. He's working bankruptcies and, and foreclosures and disease all of those things he's working so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. The God-ordained goal in all of our trials and suffering and heartache is to grow us in Christ's likeness. That's the purpose of the heat. That's why it's there. And then you work your way back to verse 28. And what do you see? You see that God is working some things for good. The good times he's working for good. The God's working easy things for good. No, God is working what? He's working all things together for good. All things. Does that include the things we fear? It does, doesn't it? All things is all things. God is working all things together for good. So that when you're tempted to fear, when you're tempted to worry about the future, about your family, about your health, about your finances, about the spider that was circling me in the bathroom this morning, Consider this. God has brought that heat into your life so that you might grow in Christ's likeness. So the heat, that very thing you fear, that's a tool that God is using to grow you in Christ's likeness. You ever thought about that? God is working all things together for good. Even the hard things, especially the hard things. You can't get rid of the heat. But you can learn to respond in a godly way as you tune your heart to godliness. You might need to commit moment by moment to trusting God and repenting of the sin of unbelief and, and, and putting your trust in Him instead of yourself. You might do that once today. Or more likely, you might need to do it a hundred times, a thousand times. The heat remains to keep you focused on what matters. It remains to grow you in Christ's likeness. Before the fear overwhelms, we must prepare ourselves for spiritual battle. Confirm your salvation. Repent of the sin that's in your heart that you know about. And ask for God's help because our God is able to make all grace abound to you, my friends. 
So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. But you can't stop there. You, you, you got to renew your minds by being grounded in the truth of God, the gospel, and our relationship with him. The prophet Isaiah said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. In times of trouble, my friends, we can anchor ourselves to the rock that is Christ, can't we? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians chapter 4. You know this passage. You should mark this passage down. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of that? He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Don't you long for the peace of God? Then he goes on and tells us exactly how we can anchor our hearts and minds on Christ. He writes in verse 8 of chapter 4, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. That's obedience, right? And the God of peace will be with you. Don't you long to have the God of peace with you? Does that sound like a fearful or an anxious person? And when you are experiencing fear, because that day is going to happen, it's going to happen. Seek God's help. Consciously put off that sinful fear. Don't flee from it and try and hide from something that God is using as a heat in your life to mold you and to change you. Consciously put off that sinful fear and put on trust and love. Paul wrote to the Romans, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Anxiety and fear are sin. But we've been given the resources we need in God's word to face that sin and to overcome it with the help of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling in your heart. Finally, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the heat that's in our life that we spend so much time and energy trying to avoid and run from. Help us to repent of that because we, we, we recognize that the heat that you bring, the painful things that you bring into our lives, even the fearsome things, the, the, the terrifying things are there because you want to grow us. You want us to be molded into the image of your son and that is your means for doing so. We have your word. We have your heat. We have the things in our lives that bake down upon us that, that we, can't, we can't remove from our lives. But help us, Father, to change the way we respond to those things that we may trust in you and glorify you in those things. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.